Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams. This week, we're going to talk to somebody who has won the Masters Tournament. Now, he won the Western Open when he was very, very young. He was a prodigy, like a lot of these guys are. But injuries, confidence, uh, really took him out of competitive golf at an age where a lot of guys still have many productive years ahead of them. And the question was, what was going to be next? Well, for Trevor Immelman, it was television. And in addition to doing television, he is now the international side President's Cup captain. So for somebody who wasn't sure what he was going to do five, six years ago, he now has one of the best jobs in network television on not only Golf Channel on NBC, but also on CBS. And he has got a big job in trying to get the international side across the line in beating the United States. That's going to be in Charlotte in September. Now, Trevor is somebody I've known for a long, long time, uh, and he is a very determined guy. So I'm not surprised that he's finding success after his playing career, but there is tons to talk to with the 08 Masters champion. With that, we bring in the 08 Masters champion and the international team's President's Cup captain, Trevor Immelman. Trevor, my friend, good morning. How are you? Hey, Gary. I'm doing very well, thanks. I'm a little tired, got to be honest. <laughs> Flew in late from uh, Waste Management last night. The WM Phoenix Open was, it was pandemonium over there, as I'm sure you saw. Uh, but a fun week nonetheless. Uh, got a great champion, Scotty Scheffler. Was able to watch the game on the flight home, so... Um, I was quite happy about that, and uh, nice to be home for a couple of weeks off now. You doing good? I'm do very well, thanks. Uh, good to be back in Charlotte. You know, we're going to talk about the, the President's Cup journey for you, which actually started when you were 25 years old uh, in 2005. Uh, but, but I don't think people realize your connection to this town. Uh, this town is personal for you. You have some dear friends here that we're going to talk about. But I do want to point out, I don't know if you probably can't see it. Years ago, you gave me a master's flag. You, you were just starting on your broadcast journey. Uh, and it's an 08 master's flag. That, and you sent it to the presenter. And I'm like, what is that? And you're like, well, that's what we call people back home who, who do what you do. Um, that's exactly right. You see, here you call it the host. We call it the presenter. <laughs> I like it. It sounds more regal. It, it, there's, a for, there's a formal nature to it that I like. But what's, what's interesting is that that was truly the beginning of your journey into, into television. And now, you know, I don't want to say you're in full flight because I know that you always, the way that you are, you always want to be getting better. But in terms of your sense of responsibilities, your voice in the game uh, is getting you know, more valuable and, and it's being amplified more and more because of the jobs that you have. What, when was that pivot point for you? When did you say, you know what, and, and whether it was, it was having a conversation with Carmenita, your wife, and just saying, honey, this is it. I'm going all in on this. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a real interesting journey. I can't say that it was ever really on my radar while I was playing. And look, I, I used to enjoy my time with the media and I would always try to be as open and honest as I could uh, when I was playing at the highest level. But it was never really on my radar to do TV. Um, probably because I didn't, I probably didn't think that I would start playing badly when I was so young. <laughs> so, you know... I uh, I was like late 30s, maybe 38-ish, and I was playing mainly on the European tour. And out of the blue, I got a call from two guys uh, you know well, Mark Summer and Adam Herzog, who used to work at the Golf Channel. Yep. Uh, when we were all back down in Orlando. And... Uh, Never, never had met these guys, didn't know them at all. And they were like, well, you know, we work at the Golf Channel. Do you have any interest in doing TV? And I was like, well, I never thought about it. So I uh, went and met with them, had lunch with them. And that was when I really started thinking about it. And all of a sudden, I started cropping up with you guys on Morning Drive and, and every now and then coming in and contrib contributing. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, 
the, the 3 a.m. wake up calls were tough, but I, <laughs> I thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, and but you know, at the time, for a couple more years, I was still playing on the European tour. So between traveling from Orlando, leaving my family, going on stints, you know, six, seven, eight weeks in a row, then coming back, trying to do a little TV. It was it was a, a tough time. Um, but after 2019 is when I really decided that I was going to jump all in on the TV. And I started getting um, bigger opportunities at bigger tournaments, more live golf. And uh, at that point, I thought, you know, the feedback was okay. Sometimes it's tough to get feedback in the TV industry. Yeah. I'll be honest. Um, but the feedback from people that I trust was fairly solid. And I thought, okay, so if I can work on a few things and find my voice a little bit, uh, know when to really come in on something and when to maybe ease off, just all the little things all of us are always trying to learn and get better at, maybe I can do this. And uh, so it's been a fun journey for the last few years. And, uh, you know, now 42 years old, um, relatively young in the TV industry, uh, who knows? So, you know, my goal would be able to do this for a couple more decades and, and see where it leads me. You know, I want to read something you said, and this was this was 2018, and it was at the Scottish Open, and and you were having a very good week, but you were being you were being reflective, and you were being very transparent, and you said. I, I'm a little concerned that my best golf is nowhere near where it, would, where it would need to be to compete at the highest level. To be quite honest with you, that is a very difficult time mentally for an athlete. Everybody faces it at some point. But when that time comes and you start to question, am I good enough to be out of here? It's a tough time. How did you manage that tough time? Yeah, I got, look, I got goosebumps just listening to you read that. It's... I managed it um, maybe not well at times, <laughs> I'll be honest, uh, but I managed it with the support of my loved ones around me, people who um, will go to bat for me all the time, who will love me unconditionally. Those are the people you need around when you're going through any type of adversity in your life. Um, and, you know, I think you manage it by, by diving into it and not running from it. So you've really just got to get in there and, and start to understand all of those feelings and understand where you're at and, uh, you know, maybe reflect on your career and understand the things you did well, maybe didn't do so well. What would you maybe do different? What are you proud of? Uh, and, and you just start to slowly but surely come to grips with where you are in your career. And I started understanding very clearly that, playing at the highest level was probably not possible because, you know, my work ethic has never wavered. Uh, still to this day, when I'm home, I, you know, when I go out with my son, like I'm all in on it. My work ethic is intense. It always has been since I was five years old. And so I knew that I could put my head on the pillow at night, knowing that I did everything possible in the gym with my nutrition, with my body, with my practice, um, to put myself in the best position to play good golf. And when you've done all of that and you still realize that it's not quite good enough to achieve what you maybe have achieved or would like to achieve, that's when you have to start having these conversations with yourself. You know, and, yeah. Uh, so slowly but surely I started coming to that realization. And it's tough. It's very tough because, Gary, the, the real interesting thing is your mind still believes you can do it. But sometimes, you know, things will happen with our bodies. We see it with Tiger Woods. We've seen it. You know, I've had crazy injuries. Duval. There's been a whole host of athletes throughout the spectrum where the mind is still there, but the body is just not going to be able to respond the way it needs to in order to achieve greatness. You know, the, the mortality rate for athletes in, in golf kind of bends the mean because because of the ability to, to, to compete at a later age. But the reality is, and you mentioned, you know, being five years old, that the, the truth is, is that when you were that age, you actually went to your parents and said, I'm, I'm going to be one of the best golfers in the world. And that was like a, an inflection point for you. I mean, that doesn't happen to most kids at that young of an age. But my point is. When you make this dedication and then the finality comes at a time 
when you didn't plan for it, nor should you be. Um, the idea of what's next can be crippling. I mean, mm-hmm. it, can, it can be something that you go, you know, you, you, your crisis of confidence could affect any area that you may go in because the thing that you excelled at at such an elite level has been stripped away from you. You've not prepared to do anything else. Yeah, absolutely right. And you need to be very careful that your self-worth and self-esteem isn't tied into, you know, your golf game in my standpoint for, you know, in my situation, because all of a sudden, if the golf game is not at the highest level, then you can't start thinking that you're a bad person or you're not good enough um, and go through, you know, that whole range of emotions. So that is a tricky aspect for an athlete, but probably no different to any other person in business or entertainment. Everybody is fighting some kind of battle out there, whether it be real or perceived. And so, you know, you just try and work your way through. And like I said, the most important thing is, is just having that nucleus around you that you know is there for you regardless. They're going to have your back regardless. They're going to love you regardless. And those are the things that I really leaned on in that moment. And then, like I said, I got lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. Two guys that I will always be thankful for in, uh, uh, in Summer and Herzog who just randomly gave me a call and they put me on this path. And they, you know, kind of shepherded me, shepherded me through that first year there, trying to point me in the right direction as I was learning from all of you at the Golf Channel uh, to see if I thought that this would be something I can do. And then lucky for me, again, uh, I, I really enjoy this. I enjoy the TV aspect. I love the game. I feel like I know a lot about the game that I can share to the viewers. Uh, sometimes you don't always find the right words in the moment. Sometimes you've only got a few seconds and you've got like minutes to talk about, you know, live TV is not a podcast. A lot of, (laughs) a lot of people on Twitter don't realize that live TV is not a podcast. I don't have 30 minutes to do every single swing breakdown. Sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm getting the, in my ear five, four, three, and I've got to say something about Jordan speed swing. So, uh, it's, it's challenging at times, but I love the challenge. I love the team aspect. I love the camaraderie amongst the group that you work with from, uh, you know, people behind the camera, people putting the whole show together, uh, the other teammates that are, are commentating. That that really gets me going. I enjoy that tremendously. And so, yeah, I, I feel like I'm in a nice spot right now. And I'm very interested to see, you know, how the next five, ten years pan out. You know, I, lo- I love what you said about live television. And I... I've tried to explain to people through the years, and you're right. You know, look, if if we botch this right now, we'll stand down. Uh, we'll 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 pick it up. We'll edit it. Uh, whereas live television is a high wire act without a net, and there is there is a rush and a sense of adrenaline and a sense of hey, we can't call time out here. We got to run the play, and, and we got and if we get it wrong, you know, we're, we're going to have a commercial break. We're going to shake it off, and we're going to do it again. Um, yeah. And you can't stop the clock. And I, I that's why I always found live TV so exhilarating. I do want to ask you though, because one of the most compelling things that I've seen. In, in my career covering the game was something that we actually reflected on with you after you had done this. And this was in 2013 when you won on the web.com tour at Sycamore Hills in, in Indiana. And it was one of the most ref- intense, real moments of think box to play box and breaking through that vortex of commitment um, and you know what I'm talking about. You were like, you were talking to your caddy, talking about the fact that, you know, I'm, I, and I'm just paraphrasing here. You were trying to get yourself committed to a shot. And it was the greatest uh, audible examination of what it requires of you. What do you remember about that? Because I thought it was, it was beyond fascinating. Yeah, I, I do remember it. I remember hitting it in the water after that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> So, it's true. Uh, I'm wanting to say the caddy was Gary Matthews, a uh, South African guy, great friend of mine. He's actually caddying for Joaquin Neiman right now. And, you know, the Corn Ferry finals, or, you know, back then it was a different name. Yep. It's a tough time for somebody uh, who's just come from the tour. You've obviously just had an awful year. You've lost your card. All of a sudden you get thrown a lifeline. You've got a week or two to totally change your mindset and try and figure out a way to get your job back. 
And there I was the first week, um, got off to a great start right down the stretch. Now, I wanted to say 18, 17, 16 is the 15th hole, par five. Um, cool par five because there's a stream that kind of meanders its way through. Right. So you've got to worry about it on your tee shot. And then it's to the right of the green. And I got the tee shot away and I was right in that zone of, you know, I'm going to have to hit some kind of three word or lay up and see what happens. And I was really struggling with what shot to go for. And uh, my caddy, Gary, was was pretty persistent that he wanted me to go for it. And I wasn't 100% committed on it. And that week, what I was really working on in my game was I was trying to hit a shape on every shot. I was trying to think less about my swing. I'd felt like I'd gotten bogged down in technique during the regular season on the PGA Tour. And I came to Sycamore Hills just trying to hit every shot with a draw or a fade, high or low. So I would try and get some kind of picture and then go for it. And I was just, I didn't know whether I wanted to start it left and cut it back toward the water or start it over the water and, and move it away. And um, it, yeah, I obviously wasn't very committed because I remember hitting it right into the water and I believe I made a bogey. And uh, but then thankfully I buried the last hole to, to actually, actually beat Cantlay by one shot. That is correct. Yeah. You beat wow, Patrick Cantlay. for him. Things have changed for both of us. I now do TV, and he's like number three in the world. That's correct. That's that is correct. Do you, do you probably don't remember who finished third, do you? Was it Aaron Oberholzer? No, but he had a good week. But he did. it was Kevin Kisner. Oh, wow. How do you like that? <laughs> you, you, good grief. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, I, and I just, uh, you know, you're, you're – you know, the deliberation, all of it was such a great examination on the requirement of commitment uh, that you have to have. You know, I mentioned, you know, the, the, the six-year-old kind of epiphany that you had. Um, and, and a lot of parents, you know, when a, when a little child of that tender of an age says, you know, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a doctor, you know, they may go, well, that's, that's ambitious. And then, you know, they just let them, you know, whatever path they take, they take. But the truth is, with your dad, Johan, and with your mom, June, your dad, like, at that moment, from what I understand, was like, we have to give him every opportunity to, to do this. Like, he took you as being a righteous six-year-old that, that really wanted to commit himself to the game of golf at that age, I mean, and, and said, you know what, we have to do this. And he did, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. I was, uh, I've said this many times, extremely... Important. I had an, an amazing childhood growing up in South Africa uh, in, a, in an awesome town called Somerset West. There were lots of golf courses to play within 30 minutes of our house and weather was good. And so I was just able to play as much golf as I wanted. And yeah, I just fell in love with the game and they decided to believe me. But it wasn't it wasn't in a forceful way at all. Like they, you know, they would never say, well, you got to go practice or why haven't you practiced or are you working on this? It was just whenever I went to them and said, can I go play in a tournament? Can I um, go to the golf course and practice? They would just find a way for me to be able to, to, to get that done. And so that was just so valuable. Uh, to have that support from them. And they really sacrificed a lot in order for, for that to happen. Um, and really, my other two siblings probably did as well. My brother was away more at that time. He's 10 years older than me. But we've got a middle sister that uh, always always gives me a hard time, she says, because I never <laughs> talk about her. So here I am. I'm talking about Michelle, my middle sister. She still lives back in South Africa with her her two kids. And she was an amazing support to me because around about that time, um, you know, when I was really starting to play well in my, um, you know, early teens, 13, 14, she had just gotten a driver's license and had a car. So all of a sudden I had another option to get me to where I wanted <laughs> to go to and, uh, you know, to go practice or to go play nine holes with my friends and, uh, you know, she'd always be giving me money to be able to get, you know, a drink and a packet of chips, you know, or something to eat, some peanuts or whatever. And so, yeah, she was also an amazing support for me at that time. 
So extremely fortunate. It, it goes back to what we were talking about a couple couple minutes ago about having that support system around you that's going to be there for you regardless. And somehow I've just always had that in my life. And so that's probably the biggest blessing that, that I've ever had. You know, to to be a kid of your age and to be put on a plane and to travel, you know, 18, 20 hours uh, to whether it be to the United States or somewhere else in the world and have a credit card and a global phone card. And <laughs> and and first of all, that shows a, a level of trust that your parents had in you. But but it requires a, a, like a conditional level of independence and discipline that really is not required of kids at, at, at that age very much. Did you adapt to that right away? Did, did you struggle with being alone? Yeah, I think I did. I don't really love change. Uh, I, like, I like being in a system, being in a routine. Uh, but that was probably good for me when I look back at it now because it kept kind of ripping me from my comfort zone and then allowing me to go and explore and compete and play against the best. And so it was probably a really good thing for me. Uh, going back to the payment structure, traveler's checks as well. Do you remember traveler's checks? Oh, oh absolutely. I here with like two booklets of traveler's <laughs> checks. And everywhere, you know, you're going to like a fast food restaurant or something, you're asking them if they take traveler's checks. <laughs> what an interesting time. But uh, yeah, I think it made me grow up really fast. It made me mature and... Um, get serious, maybe even a little too serious, who knows? Mm. Uh, I, I would say, looking back at it now, one of the reasons I, I stopped competing you know, so early was there was definitely a factor of burnout there. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, So that, who knows if that contributed to that. But at the time, Gary, the discipline, I don't think my parents were ever worried about because I was so focused. And my wife will tell you this. We've been together since high school. Like single-minded doesn't even portray. <laughs> like it was laser-like. Yeah. I, knew, I knew exactly what I wanted to achieve. And I knew exactly what it was going to take to get there. By being fortunate enough to observe and be close to people like Ernie Els, David Frost, Mark McNulty, Nick Price. So I saw what it took from an early age. And like blinders was like this. Like mm -hmm. I could not, nothing else came into the equation other than preparing myself to play at the highest level. You know, the first time I saw you play, it was 2003 at the Wells Fargo, which was in the Wachovia at Quail Hollow. And, and, the, and the reason I saw you is that I was following Ty Tryon, who you were grouped with in the first two rounds. And I think Mark Wilson was the third in your okay. group. And, and I knew Ty when he was a little boy. I used to play golf with him. He, his family lived in Chapel Hill. And so his dad had custom-made spikes for him when he was like six years old. So anyway, I, I saw you. And my, my, my impression of you was he acts twice his age. And you were 23 years old. There was, there was a polish and a presentation of somebody uh, who was much older than, than his, his birth certificate suggested. Do you think that was part of the osmosis from being around all these elders that were a part of your life that, that you, yeah. you had in your life? Yeah, for sure. And also, I've always been such a golf junkie that, you know, back when I was growing up, we would we would videotape every PGA Tour event that came on TV. And not all of them did back then. And when they did, they were at midnight. And so we would videotape them. And we had drawers and boxes full of videotapes with like labels, you know, 1987 Bay Hill Invitational. Um and I would just watch these tapes over and over and over again and just observe what all these players were doing and how they would conduct themselves and the way they would interact with the fans. And, you know, it was a bit more serious back then, the way the players would, would, would handle themselves. And so I think all of that just, it just sort of bled in. And that was the way I accepted that I needed to behave myself. 
in a professional manner at all times. And uh, as I started progressing, I think it's very interesting that, or very important, shall I say, that players start to understand what makes them tick. You know, are you on the Lee Trevino side of the spectrum or are you on the Ben Hogan side of the spectrum? Uh, how do you need to behave and think and act in order to perform your best? And I think the ones that have hung around for the longest time have been able to be authentic like that. Uh, and so as you then start to learn what makes you tick, then that's when you sort of gravitate to your zone. And I was absolutely more of a guy that had to be extremely focused, not pay attention to anybody, not look at anybody, not talk to anybody. Uh, I just had to stay in my lane, in my zone the whole time until the round was over. So that was just my thing. You know, you use the term burnout, and, and I've referenced uh, this particular story several times with players that I've had on about as it pertains to time management and, and being balanced and, and, and doing uh, the best you can to, to have energy when you actually play. When you won the Masters, and correct me if I'm wrong, your next start was actually in Charlotte. I think you were going to play in New Orleans, and you scratched late. Like, you, you might have been committed, and you wound up not going. Is that right? No, it was Byron Nelson. Byron Nelson. Byron. Okay. Yeah. And it, it, carry on with your Okay. My, my, okay, so you come to Charlotte, and I'm sitting in your pre-tournament presser, and you said something that was one of the most, uh, I, I thought, uh, prophetic things that I've heard from a tour player. You, you said, first of all, I'm still exhausted, and, and secondly, I don't know how Tiger does this every week. Uh-huh. And, and I'm like, I'll be a son of a bitch. Like, like yeah, like he does this every week. Um, and that to me is one of the more underrated things about him. You know, I heard you on with the four play guys talking about his commitment, his commitment to everything. I mean, he, 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 he had to do more than anybody every single week, and yet his performance level never dipped. And I thought for you that, I don't know if that was a revelation for you that you went, this is all I've ever wanted, and now I've got the apex of my career. I've won the Masters, and I'm wiped out. Yeah. Yeah, it was a very interesting time. I'm, you know, obviously, the jubilation of winning and the relief of winning. You know, after the last few minutes, I'm sure you can understand and get a feel for how important a moment like that was for me. You know, I was I was, I was dreaming about that and building up to that since I was five years old and I won the Masters when I was 28. So, you know, shade over a couple decades of just grinding there. Um, and so you have the relief and jubilation and then all of a sudden a, a bunch of things start getting thrown at you. And I think the thing that I wasn't very good at at the time was saying no. Mm -hmm or saying, I'm sorry, thanks so much, but I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. I can't, I can't be there, I can't make it. Uh, I can't do what you need me to do. And so I was just running all over the place, trying to please people as much as I could. Um, and it absolutely caught up with me. And so that was something that I had to, to, to learn and deal with. And I always vowed to myself, if I was ever in that situation again, I would handle it much differently. Um, but, you know, I guess you live and you learn. And that, that was the, the process that I went through. And then shortly after that was when the, the pain in the left wrist cropped up a couple months later. And then that whole debacle started with me fighting, fighting that and trying to manage that and trying to decide uh, if I should have surgery, if I should keep rehabbing. Uh, I have so many opportunities coming right now. What's the best thing for me to do? And so just trying to navigate your way through that was a, was a very interesting time for me. Um, and, uh, you know, I look back now and I, I think to myself, shucks, all of these youngsters that are, are winning majors now, um, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of advice I could, I could give them with uh, the mistakes that I made, shall I say. Mm. You know, three years prior to you winning the Masters, I referenced the, the President's Cup 2005. You're 25. Uh, your captain is a deity in, in South African golf, not to mention globally in his Gary Player. Re refresh my memory. There was something that transpired in one of your matches 
that was that was a, a rules controversy or there was a, something happened. Do you remember what that was? There was no, a, you know okay gosh but what I remember in 2005 2005 yeah oh, and, yes I do remember yes I do remember okay what was it this was the this was the um I can't remember if it was alternate shot or best ball myself and Mike Weir were playing against Davis Love and I'm wanting to say David Toms okay the David Toms Stuart Sink um we get to the 17th hole I believe we are either all square or one down. And I hit my shot in there to about 10, 12 feet. Definitely no gimme. And um, whoever Davis's partner was, one of the other two guys that I mentioned, I'm wanting to say it was Tom, hit it in there to about three, three and a half feet. Great shot. And so the, as we're walking on the green, there's a bunch of crowd noise and Mike Weir says, good shot. And Davis thinks he said, it's good. Oh. So Davis goes and picks the ball up. And as he picks the ball up, Mike is like, what are you, what are you doing? And Davis is like, well, you said it's good. And he said, no, I said, good shot. So... Now that whole thing kicks off. We get the, uh, the rules officials in there. The match is tight, so it's extremely yeah. important situation. And we go back and forth, and you know we decide that the right thing for us to do is to just place the ball back where we think it was, and uh, and carry on. And I'll never forget. So now, um, Mike, it's his putt. So it was alternate shot and he puts the ball down and I just remember he's kind of crouched down yes. the I'm standing over him like a caddy would. And I just remember saying to him, well, after all that, you better F and make this. <laughs> <laughs> and he, you know, in microwave fashion, man, that guy's clutch. And uh, he just rolled it right in the middle. I actually can't even remember what happened on the last hole, but yeah, that was, that was the rules issue. And for, for me, uh, uh, you know, I was probably only 24 or 25 oh, years 25. Old yeah. And here you are with, you know, Hall of Fame players. And uh, it, it's it's an interesting moment. It's an interesting moment. Well, I, what I remember is is you not cowering at all. Like you were you were right in the middle of that thing. You didn't defer to Mike. Uh, you were speaking your mind, and I'm like, wow, this guy's got chops. Like he's standing <laughs> in there. He's on foreign soil. <laughs> it's not a synonym for stupid. Uh, <laughs> no, I, it, it absolutely left an impression. You know, you're wearing the logo of the International Presidents Cup team, and and I've heard you talk about this. And and look, I think that 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 symbolism and things that are personal to you, whether to other people, it's just the optics of a logo or whatever. That it that it matters. Explain to why why that 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 was so important for you guys to carve out your true own identity. Well, I think there's a few different reasons. Uh, you know, when the Presidents Cup was started, the players like me, international players, were extremely thankful for that because all the years, all those great players. Uh, that came from places outside of Europe and America would sit and watch the Ryder Cup and be like, yeah, this is awesome. But, you know, we also feel like we're top 10 in the world or top five in the world um, or be like Greg Norman, best in the world, Nick Price, Ernie Els, all these people. And uh, didn't have the opportunity to compete in a team event like that. And so the President's Cup uh, is something that's always been important to us. But for all those years, we never really had a flag or a logo that was ours. Um, the tour came up with some kind of flag that was somewhat resembled the European flag, except the stars weren't in a circle. They were just put kind of randomly all over this blue bag. And uh, it, it, it meant nothing to us. It meant absolutely nothing. Probably didn't really even notice it on, on the, the golf bag or um, any of the apparel and 
you know, I give Ernie so much credit for noticing that. I, I never have asked him for how many years he was thinking about it mm-hmm. or for how many years it annoyed him or irritated him. But I give him so much credit for when the opportunity arose uh, that he stuck to his guns and he went for it. And he designed this logo that encapsulates, you know, the pin flag and the shield and Celtic knot and things that actually mean something to us now. We understand exactly what it means. Um, And so, yeah, it was a huge moment for us down in Australia. And for him to unveil that, explain that to us. And we were proud to compete for that flag. You know, even when you roll up to the team cabins at the golf course and you see the flag flying there, we know what it means. And it means something very special to us. And uh, so once I got my opportunity here to be captain, and it's been an extra year because of the the COVID situation and uh, the way the President's Cup was pushed back, I wanted to take it a step further and and build on this legacy and this logo that, that Ernie made for us. So my whole thought process has been, okay, how do I, how do we start to actually get noticed as as a team, as a as a real sporting franchise in the world that comes mm-hmm. together every couple of years to play against the Americans, which are an incredibly powerful brand and team. Yep. And so I just wanted to build on that. And that's where the emphasis on uh, social media, allowing our teams to have social media accounts, allowing fans to get to know our players a little bit more intimately, um, and then the merchandise. You know, you, getting people an opportunity to, if they do want to support our team, they can now get on a site wherever they are in the world and, and buy a piece of merchandise to support us. Or if they're going to come to Charlotte, they can get some stuff and pitch up there in their team gear. We would play the President's Cup and look around, even if we were playing at home, so to speak, in Australia or South Africa or Canada or wherever, not see anybody wearing our gear. Like, in if you're a sports fanatic, that makes zero sense. You just think of the Super Bowl last night. Right. Every fan either had a Bengals jersey on or a Rams jersey on. We would go to the President's Cup and you would just see American stuff because one of the things I love about America, you'd go to a 7-Eleven and buy a merchandise <laughs> with an American flag on. You'd get a hat or a shirt or a, you know, a, a cup or something. And we never had that available to us. And so that was something that was extremely important to me. Uh, worked really hard on it, um, was frustrating at times because of all the different hurdles I had to jump over in order to try to make this happen. And so it's something I'm extremely proud of because at the end of the day, Gary, when you look at it, our team, the international team, we represent billions of people all over the world. You know, why on earth wouldn't we try and be trying to tap into those people who are golf fans to get behind our team every couple of years. I mean, we have an incredible opportunity in September to play against maybe the, the best American team in history. And they sure showed that at the Ryder Cup. So, you know, we're going to need all the support we can get. And I think it's going to be a proud moment for me personally, but for our team, especially walking onto the first green or the second green and you see people behind the green wearing a t-shirt or a hoodie or a hat like that's something that's never happened before right that's cool it is i, I you know i want you to either dispel or or validate the, these particular claims the idea of uh there, there's an absence of a collective cause uh there are cultural barriers there there their language issues are those things fabricated or are they legitimately real things that you've got to try to break down as the captain? Well, I think we absolutely have a legitimate cause and goal. Uh, you know, we are tired of getting up, tired of getting our butts kicked. Um, we've come close a number of times. We obviously only had that one win and one tie. Uh, came close in Korea, came, came extremely close in oh. Australia. Um, You know, we we had an incredible opportunity on that Sunday, and I'm not. 
I don't know if choked is the right word. I think we ran out of gas a little bit. We put so much into the first few days. Um, and, you know, you also have to give credit to the American team that came out and played such incredible golf on that final day. So you cannot ignore that. Um, and, uh, man, we didn't have to do all that much on that Sunday, but we fell short. So that, that really stung. Uh, but it also showed us that, hey, maybe we can do this. We've turned the page with our team. We've got a bunch of youngsters that have come through and uh, that are good and that are hungry and that are passionate and they love each other. And so, uh, you know, I think the hunger is there. The cause is there. Frankly, I get a little bit irritated when I read uh, on social media or, or in articles about people saying that the President's Cup should change its format. It should do something different. It should get blown up. You know, it's actually a little offensive to us. We love this event. We are passionate about this event. We love our team. We want to win this event. We love the opportunity of being able to play against the Americans. So um, that's something that always kind of gets under my skin a little bit. When it comes to the cultural barriers, the language barriers, that's for real. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but once again, I think in the last four years, years or so we finally acknowledged that and we finally came up with a plan and sacrificed some time uh, to be able to overcome that and so that's something we're constantly working on uh, and intend to get better and better and better at uh, so that we can get there as one unit and not start gelling at the end of the week we rather want to be as one, one squad even before the 12 get picked uh, and then arrive at the President's Cup ready to go. You know, we, we in our minds, we're building this uh, for Charlotte, but not just for Charlotte. We're looking way down the road on this. Uh, we, like I said, we love this event. We want this event to be around forever. And we want to start winning this event at some point. So that's our mindset. You know, you, you know this, and, and for those folks who don't look, Charlotte has been a, a, a great town for golf. Uh, even prior to the, the Wells Fargo Championship, the Kemper was here. Um, but they are going to build out uh, a footprint and a presentation that, that nobody's ever seen before. Uh, this is, and they are, they are well, they've just crushed their budget numbers on corporate hospitality, which is great. And I know, look, it makes the challenge bigger, uh, but you want the spectacle that this thing is going to be. Um, but I want to go back to 19 for a minute because of Tiger's presence and ask you this, because you, you, saw, you saw it up close every day. You were his neighbor. And I asked Tommy Fleetwood about this because he played with him at the Zozo for two rounds. And he said it was artistry that, that he'd, he'd waited his whole life to see in person. And he had a pitch count at Melbourne, but what he was doing there was all the windows were open. It was majestic to see. For the younger generation, I mean, you probably didn't say this, but did you want to say, yeah, that's it. That's what we all used to see every day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I remember having the same feeling back in 2019 at the Masters. Um, you know, the era that I came up in, was dominated by Tiger Woods. Dominated my, it, it's like it's not even a strong enough word. Like no, it isn't. Obliterated everybody. And, you know, that was an interesting time to really be playing. Hey, that's our, late, that's our latest team rankings that have just come <laughs> in. So that, I love it. <laughs> but uh, uh, the way he destroyed a couple of generations. You know, the generation before me and then my generation uh, was something to behold, uh, not seen often in sports. And then, you know, the, the next crew that came through from the McElroy's, the Thomas's to the Speeds um, and, and, and those kinds of players, uh, they, they just grew up watching him when they were in, you know, in uh, primary school, as we would call it, or middle school, right. starting high school, uh, just youngsters, teenagers. 
And so it was more of never really got to experience the pain of thinking you're good and getting this guy just ripping your heart out, you know? And so for me, in a funny way, I got a little kick out of 2019 <laughs> because here's this guy, he's in his mid forties. Uh, he's supposed to be past it. He's on the biggest stage in golf. And it was just an absolute display of experience and power and intimidation on that second nine when everyone around him was faltering and he was just playing perfect shot after perfect shot and then winning his fifth green jacket. And I remember finishing, I made the cut in 2019. That was the last Masters I've actually played. And I remember because of the weather, we had the two T start, yep. which is very unusual. I was teeing off 10. Um, and so I finished probably an hour before he finished went up into the locker room and we were watching a bunch of champions were up there and we just organically decided like we're going to go down you know we're going to go down and watch this finish and as he was walking through that mass of people uh high-fiving and he had his family with him his kids uh and I, I, that, that image of i was standing like at the scorers yes. area looking down that tunnel of people and that, that that image that minute or two of my life i will remember forever uh and you know seeing the the joy and the relief on his face um you know none of us really know all the things he's gone through he's such a private guy um but like anybody he's had his fair share of adversity uh but but it's just seeing that gamut of emotion that he's going through and then the other thing I remember is giving him a hug, like giving him a high five and a yeah. hug. And like he was just drenched in sweat, Gary, like soaked. His shirt was soaked. And I, like it, that struck me even. Uh, and, uh, and then the minutes that ensued after that was just an incredible time for our sport. And so for that, you know, that performance kind of got that same feel at the President's Cup on that final day. Um, Ernie threw our, our best player for the week, Abe Ansar, out yep. there. And it was a great match. And I was walking with him all day long. And Tiger was one up after, I'm going to say 14-ish, 15-ish. Just finished, you know, with a couple birdies in the last few there. Three and two, no real problems. Very, very uh, impressive finish to that match. The, um, the, the 19 Masters, you mentioned the 2C start. Because of that, you know, Live From came on very early in the morning. Uh, morning Drive got bumped. And I, I actually I went to Ben Dawn, uh, one of our, our senior producers, and Ben was going to drive back to Orlando. And I'm like, don't, don't. I'm like, what are you doing? I said, I'm going out to walk with that group, with Finau and Molinari and Tiger. And he's like, I I'm leaving. I said, come on, just walk a couple holes with me. So Tiger bogeyed four and five, and, he, and he's like, I'm leaving. I'm like, don't leave. I don't know if he's going to win. Just don't leave. So, Trevor, I've got a little leather-bound book that I always carry with me on the golf course. I've got every shot of his, all 70 blows, time-stamped where he was in relation to the – I saw all 70 of them. And when wow. I got behind the 18th green because of that phalanx of people and the rope line that had to be created to get to scoring where you and a bunch of other players were waiting for him – um, I stood in the same place for 18 minutes, uh, because wow. yeah, and it's, it is, I've been very lucky in my life to, to beat a lot of great sporting events as a kid and, and covering play. That's it. That's the apex. That was, it was, it was, it was, it was a virtuoso performance. And he was almost, it was almost like a mythical figure among the, this group of, of a younger generation as if he had come out of the woods to, to, to play this fictional round of golf. It was, yeah, um, yeah it was staggering. Now, I want to ask you about Augusta National because to go back there as a champion is one of the special things really in the game. When you won the pub links and you, won, and you went there, was that the first time you'd ever been on the grounds? No. Uh, after I won the pub links, um, you know, once again, that was that was my father was like, man, wouldn't it be great if you could find a way to get a few rounds in before the actual tournament? 
So we found a way to get in touch uh, with the member, Sir Ronald Hempel. And uh, he said that he would have me over. And that year, I actually started playing some pro events as an amateur. And I remember playing Dubai Desert Classic and the Qatar Masters back-to-back weeks. I don't need to say I made the cut in both. I definitely made the cut in Qatar the week before. I remember playing with Bob May that week, actually. Oh, my gosh. Bob from the PGA. And um, flew from Qatar to London, then to the U.S., and went to Augusta National. And I, I stayed in the Butler cabin for that weekend. Do you remember the room I, you stayed in? Well, the one to the to the left. I'm not sure what what the name. Okay, I I stayed in the Arkansas room in the Butler cabin. That was my one stayover. The left, right where they do the the, the presentation. Wow. And, they put, and and the defending champion puts the green jacket on. I mean, how weird is that? Yeah. And whatever it was. So that was '99. It was '99, and then in 2008, that's where I put the green jacket on. So. I remember calling my parents going, you, you, I mean, you won't believe this. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like in a bed in the butler cabin about to go to sleep. I'm going to play 36 holes at Augusta National tomorrow morning. So uh, incredible. Spent two days there, played the part three, played the golf course three or four times and had a blast. Um, and then, so now it was probably February. So it was a couple of months before the tournament. And then uh, got there for the tournament, had some practice rounds with Ernie and Gary Player uh, and a bunch of other awesome players. And then I got drawn with Gary in the first uh, first round. Wow. And, uh, what, what an incredible week that was. I mean, what, what an incredible week to be able to be there and compete as an amateur and uh, make the cut, play the weekend. Yeah, things I'll never forget, absolutely. Whether you agree with this or not, I happen to agree with it. I, I, I think that... You know, for the European Ryder Cup team, it, clearly I, it's a period of transition for them, and they're, sure. and, they're, and they'll cultivate talent, and and they're going to be they're going to be five. Look, the the Hoy guards, the, those two guys win golf tournaments left and right. But but aside from that, when I look at your roster, and Jaime Diaz said this when I had this conversation with him and Eamon Lynch right after the Ryder Cup, he said, I think the International President's Cup team will be better than the European Ryder Cup team for the next decade because of you look at your core group and then you look at all these young guys that are coming into the system. I mean, I think you're going to be loaded. I really do. Um, You have, I mean, tell me your depth chart right now. How many guys realistically are you looking at? Well, first of all, I'd like to lower expectations. Thanks, Gary. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, yeah, look, we, we are in, a, in a, a fresh phase right now. Uh, we have a ton of youngsters and a ton of talent from all over the world. Uh, um, you know, South Africa, Japan, all over Asia, Australia, uh, South America. There's a lot of talent starting to come through. Um, and I have got a squad of about 25 right now. Okay. And we're in constant communication. We're getting together regularly, uh, getting to know each other more and more. Uh, and the, 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 new, the new guys are starting to understand the way we do things, uh, what this team stands for, um, and, and how we like to operate. So... Once again, that is with the mind on not just Charlotte, but Montreal, Medina, wherever the next President's Cups start going. You know, we, we're in this for the long haul. Uh, we understand very clearly that in order for this tournament to progress and become a real rivalry, we got to step up to the plate. we got to start delivering on the golf course in the tournament and really challenging the Americans. So, you know, we're doing everything we can in order to put ourselves in a position to where when we get to the President's Cup, get to the tournament, all the little pieces are taken care of and these guys can focus on their games and, and believe in what they've got and what got them there. I think we are on a much better track now with the new qualification criteria. Um, 
And so the eight that automatically qualify, I don't think there'll be any surprises there. And, uh, and then it'll be up to me with, with the four picks to try and match all of it together. I, I think it's going to be, again, uh, the atmosphere is going to be great. Uh, and you've got a lot of choices, as you just pointed out. Before I get you out of here, I just want to get your thoughts on this thou- uh, the Saudi threat. There's been a lot of clumsy stuff said in the last couple of weeks. And, and it's created, you know, I think some reasonable debate, some very unreasonable. Um, where is this going? I kind of have two answers for you. My one answer is the first thing that came to my mind was, well, I wish I knew where it's going. And the second thought that popped into my mind was, well, maybe I don't want to know. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. It's an interesting time. Um, it's an interesting time for players and agents. Yeah. You know, agents have one thing in mind, and that is doing the best financially uh, and brand wise, making those best decisions that they can for their players and athletes. Uh, The tour is trying to find a way to put their stake in the ground and commit that this is the best place to play golf, allow players to understand uh, that the system is maybe not quite as flawed as what they think it is, that maybe the grass is not as greener on the other side. And so there's a lot of noise right now. And somebody or people in our position as media are trying to make sense of that. Uh, so, wow, it's, it sure is an interesting time. I will say this. I think, I think the players have some leverage. I think they've, they've played it. They've played their cards quite well over the last couple seasons. But it's going to come to a head here pretty soon, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I'm and with you. I think we will all know more quite soon. All right, let me get you out of here on this. Five quick questions. Uh, the, the best champion's meal you've had other than the one you served? Ooh, there's been a lot of good ones. I am going to go with Adam Scott. When he served the meal, he did like a surf and turf out of Australia, paired it with some 95 Penfolds Grange, which was pretty <laughs> incredible. Uh, the wine pairing becomes... More and more important to the past champions, the older we get. So, uh, you know, that that's the way my advice to Hideki is, you know, that's the way to to win over all the older guys is make sure you've got some good wine served. Uh, so Scotty's definitely jumps out for okay. sure. It was an incredible evening and it was it was everything you would expect from Adam Scott. You know, when you when you visualize him in your mind, it's put together, it's classy, it's uh, and and that's exactly what he did for us. And it was one of Arnold's last dinners, uh, so 2014, uh, and, and he only had a couple more. All right, the best shot you've ever witnessed in person? Uh, it was Tiger Woods, and it actually wasn't in competition. It was at Isleworth. We were playing together couple weeks or maybe a week after I won the Western Open, he invited me over to come and hang out, do some practice with him. And we practiced all day and we went to go play. 17th hole at Isleworth is a dogleg left par five. Uh, there's a lake way to the right, which is kind of not really in play, but you can cut the corner. But there's some huge mounds if you try to cut the corner. And the rough wasn't very long, probably only an inch and a half. And he's tried to cut the corner but he hasn't quite got as far as what he wanted and he's got 280 to the front (laughs) 305 to the hole the hole was back right i've already laid up no chance to get there this hole is well over 600 yards and we're back in 2006 so we weren't hitting a 350 and he's got like this ball below his feet side heel lie and he pulls the driver out, not, not in the fairway. And I'm like, what is this guy doing? And I'm sitting over in the cart. I've driven right over, you know, and I'm kind of like leaning in my seat watching this. And he hits this high towering cut off of his, out of the rough, ball below his feet, um, driver off the deck to 15 feet and makes the putt. And I was just like... <laughs> Nobody, nobody 
else on the planet can hit this shot right here. It was, in a sense, I actually think it was kind of flexing on me because I beat him at the Western Open a couple of weeks yeah. before. And I think it was a moment where he's just like, okay, let me just make sure that this kid understands <laughs> it's not going to happen again. <laughs> and so what a golf shot, man. That is seared into my brain and will never, ever, ever be forgotten. Wow. That guy could do stuff. That guy could do stuff. And all of us thought at one point in time we were pretty good, whether you are, you know, Ernie Els, Adam Scott, any of the other close friends of mine that I've spoken to about these experiences. And obviously, Ernie had a lot more than oh, what, yeah. what I did. But uh, all of those players say, you know, they all had a moment at some point where it was like, okay, I think I'm pretty good, but I can't do that. <laughs> so. Wow. All right. The, the, the golf course you'd like to see the President's Cup at outside of the U.S.? Well, I mean, I'm going to be biased and say I want to go to South Africa. And yeah. if I had my way, I would take it to a course called Leopard Creek, which is owned by Johan Rupert. It's right on the Kruger National Park. It would be an incredible experience for uh, both uh, sets of players and for fans that could make the trip. Golf course is fantastic. Uh, designed by uh, Gary Player and Jack Nicholas. Um, with some tweaks from Mr. Rupert. So uh, great golf course would be an awesome test and uh, would be an experience that would be remembered forever by all the fans and the players. Just being out, you know, in the African bushveld is how we would describe it. Right. I, I, a few friends of mine have been there as it, and they said it, it is, it is, one of the most remarkable experiences to see what you see uh, right there adjacent from the golf course. Yeah. All right. The, the, the school you want Jacob to play college golf at. (laughs) That was so easy. (laughs) You sent me up there. Yeah, I know. I know. Just trying to figure out, you know, he's going to have, he's going to have to do a little work. I will say this. He won the junior club championship. Saw that. At our course this weekend, really proud of him. I wasn't able to uh, to watch uh, because I was working out at WM, but was following closely on the app. Really proud of him for getting that win. Loves golf, absolutely loves golf. Whether he's good enough uh, to be able to play college golf or not, we'll have to see. But that's his goal. That's that's what he wants out of his game. Is he wants to be able to play professional golf? And we have so many ties and friends. Uh, at Clemson. Yep. That uh, that would really be a thrill for us. Trevor pointed to the two uh, footballs denoting national championships signed by his buddy Dabo Swinney. All right, last thing, your favorite cuss word or phrase on the course? I don't cuss on the course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I only throw clubs. I don't swear. Um, oh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, generally nowadays, like with my game, the level of disgust is so deep and it's so raw. It like cuts right into my heart because like we spoke about at the start of this pod, you know, your brain still thinks I'm like 26 years old and can hit all these different shots. And, you know, oh, just this is just a nice cut five out into the middle of the green and you flare it out into a water hazard and you just like kind of, go through these moments of why am I doing this to myself? So, um, but I still love it. I love getting out there. I actually just got uh, some new tailor-made irons and woods uh, right before I left to go to WM. So I got two weeks off. I actually have an 8.30 tea time tomorrow morning. So I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm going to have to get in the gym and do a little stretching today after sitting in the booth all weekend so I can not make too much of a fool of myself out there tomorrow. Well, listen, also, Gary, yeah. I'm in a tricky spot right now because it, my son could beat me any any day now, Uh-oh. any day, any day, and so I've got to I've got to really start to strategize <laughs> and be ready for this because if I'm not ready at 8:30 tomorrow morning, I'm probably going to take my first L. So it's getting dangerous. We're in a dangerous <laughs> spot right now. 
Listen, I am uh, I'm I'm really thrilled for all the success because you know early on when you started doing TV, you know I, I saw the determination and and the commitment and and even though you weren't sure whether you're going to do it. Uh, that the, the fact is when you do something, you do it 100 uh, percent and and rewards come to people who do that. So I'm very happy for you. Best of the family. I'm, I'm excited to see you here in Charlotte when you come up uh, for what is going to be a great week for the game of golf. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you so much for, for the time and having me on and everything you do for the game. You are one of the one of the most educated and knowledgeable people about the game of golf that I have ever worked with. So thank you for everything you do for our awesome sport. Thank you, buddy. Thanks again to Trevor Immelman, the 08 Masters champion, a valuable voice in the game being heard every week now doing network television. And I do believe that that team of his has a very good chance of winning the President's Cup at Quail Hollow. Thanks to him, but more importantly, thanks to you for listening to this Five Clubs conversation. And again, it's not just me. It's Jay Billis. It's Gil Hans. It's Emma Carpenter. The family is growing. Maybe too fast. Maybe not fast enough. We'll see you next time on this Five Clubs conversation. <laughs> <laughs>